I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible, and today we're going to be looking at uh, most of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, and that's on pages 1032 and 1033 in the red Bibles around you. Revelation chapter 8, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is in verse 6. I'm going to read from 8, verse 6, down through the end of chapter 9. This vision that John saw, we read that now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. A second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpion, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And and the heads of the horses were like lions, heads and fire. They were like lions heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and that you would help us to see the sobering and also wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray you would do it for your namesake first and foremost, but also for the building up, the equipping, the encouragement and the hope of your people. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. January 8th, 2008, there was a massive car accident that took place on the I-4 interstate between Tampa and Orlando, Florida. It was uh, one of those massive vehicle chain reaction pileups. Seventy different vehicles collided into one another, one after another. It included some 20 different semis, many of which, after the crash, began to burn all the way down to the ground. Tragically, four people were killed in that massive accident. It took place in the early morning hours of January the 8th. And it was really because of the result of the morning fog that had come about, combined with dark smoke from nearby brush fires near the interstate. The visibility went from being mostly clear to being a little bit foggy to being completely dark within a very short period of time. One person involved in the accident said that everything came to an almost immediate stop and you couldn't even see your hands in front of your faces. Earlier that day, uh, forestry workers had notified the highway patrol of the potential danger that was there, the smoke coming from the brush fires that they were seeking to put out, mixing with that morning fog. And so they sounded the warning to the highway patrol. Warning signs were set up along the highway. Alerts were sent out via the internet and uh, social media and uh, the CB radios to communicate with the, the semis and the truckers. But people either didn't believe the warnings or they didn't pay attention to them. And the result was tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage, a standstill on a very important interstate in Florida for hours, 
and four lives lost. Revelation 8 and 9 is a warning. It's like that warning signs, the warning signs that were posted on the interstate telling the people ahead, slow down. There is danger ahead. There is a massive accident. You are going to be a part of it if you do not slow down and heed the warning. Except Revelation 8 and 9, the warning that comes from there is even more important and even more serious than the warnings on the side of the interstate in Orlando. There are even greater consequences for not paying attention to these warnings that we have in Revelation 8 and 9. Before we jump in, we need to remind ourselves of the context, first of all, of the entire book of Revelation. Just to remind yourself, this is a letter that was written to John in the first century A.D., It was given to John by an angel, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, through an angel to John. And it was meant as a help, as an encouragement to God's people who were dealing with incredible trials and difficulties and persecutions in the first century. And this letter was written to give them hope and strength that they might endure and persevere through the very difficulties of their lives. This letter is often uh, seen as being confusing, but it helps to understand that the letter was written in cycles. It has a number of cycles, many times involving the number seven. There we looked at seven letters that were written to seven churches. We've looked at the seven seals. Today we're looking at these seven trumpets and in coming weeks we'll see seven bowls. And it's written not like a a historical narrative like we have in the Old Testament historical books, but it's given to us uh, taking snapshots uh, all along the way of the same period of time, but from different perspectives. If you think about it this way, we have in the New Testament, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four Gospels are are written by uh, four different authors, and they're looking at the same time period, the life of Jesus on earth. But they all have their different perspectives, and so they bring to us different perspectives of the same period of time. And that's what's happening here in the book of Revelation. We're looking at the same period of time, the time from Jesus's first arrival on earth until his second coming. But we're seeing it in various cycles from different perspectives. The book of Revelation contains lots of symbolism. The numbers and the images that we get in these visions are not meant to be taken over overly literally. But this book is also not meant to be confusing. It's not meant to be hard to understand, but it's meant to be understood and encouraging to God's people. And also remind yourself of the more immediate context of what we're looking at here today. Just back a few chapters in chapters four and five, we saw John getting a vision of the throne room of heaven. And there in the throne room of heaven, he sees the throne and on the throne, he sees the father seated. And in the in the throne room of heaven, next to the throne, we see the lamb of God. And John saw a scroll that represented the eternal decrees of God, his plan. And we're told in those chapters that only the lamb could open that that scroll. Chapter six, we looked at the lamb beginning to open the scroll. It had seven seals on it and he opened one seal at a time. And with the opening of the seal, judgment took place on the earth. The perspective we were getting with the seven seals was what it's like for God's people 
between the first advent and the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus was on how God's people are safe and secure and protected and preserved from the judgments that come on evil. We looked at the fifth seal in particular last week and we saw Christians crying in heaven out to their father and praying for God's justice to be done on earth and we looked last week at those prayers being answered. We saw what happened as those prayers rose up into the throne room of heaven and today what we're seeing is the effect of those prayers, God's judgment being done on the earth, these seven trumpets of judgment being blown by the angels. It's the same time period, it's the same judgments that we were looking at with the seven seals, but now we're looking at it not from the perspective of God's people being safe and secure, but now we're looking with these trumpets at the perspective of those who are not God's people. Today, we'll see what happens when these trumpets are played. The first six trumpets, that is. We won't get to the seventh trumpet until the end of chapter 11. And we'll also spend some time thinking about the overall purpose of the trumpets. This is meant to be a serious and somber warning for those who hear it this morning who are not in the family of God. Who are not... Uh, in a relationship with the Lord God Almighty. But it's also meant as an incredible encouragement and hope for those who are in Christ. So let's look, first of all, at the playing of these trumpets and what happens when they are played. If you remember back in chapter 8, verse 2, we're told that seven angels were given seven trumpets. And then in verse 6, the first verse that we read this morning, the angels are given the call that it's now time to sound the trumpets, to blow the trumpets. And as they blow these trumpets, we see various cycles of judgment unleashed on the earth. It's not unlike... Those plagues that were released on Egypt in the Old Testament that we talked about earlier. So the first four trumpets were found are, are found in chapter eight, verses six through twelve. The first trumpet is in verse seven. And when it is blown, we're told that hail and fire mixed with blood come down on the earth such that a third of the earth and the trees are burned up and all of the grass are burned up. It reminds us of that seventh plague on Egypt, a massive storm of hail and lightning. And yet it's interesting to note that only a third of the earth is destroyed. The second trumpet is in verses 8 and 9. We read there that something like a great mountain of fire, a great mountain that was on fire, was thrown down into the sea, into the ocean when the second trumpet was blown. And we're told that a third of the sea turned to blood and a third of the creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships on the ocean destroyed. One of the key things to mention here is we get this phrase, something like a mountain on fire. That actually, that little phrase, something like, is repeated 15 times in these verses. It's a key for us. It's, a, it's something that our minds are supposed to hear, our ears are supposed to hear. It's telling us that we're not uh, supposed to take all of these details as being overly literal. It's something like a mountain being thrown down out of the earth. Perhaps it's a volcanic eruption or some meteorite of extraordinary size crashing into the ocean. 
In verses 10 and 11, we get the third trumpet. As it has blown, we're told that a great star fell from heaven, crashing into the rivers and the springs of water, and that the name of this star is Wormwood. Wormwood is the name of a bitter-tasting herb in Israel that's often used to deter moths from eating garments. So it makes sense when we read that a third of the fresh water became bitter and people actually died when they drank it. The fourth trumpet is in verse 12. We read there that when the fourth trumpet was blown, a third of the sun, the moon, the stars were struck such that a third of their light was kept from shining both during the day and during the night. Here are these first four trumpets. Did you notice as they are blown, judgment comes down on the physical aspects of the earth, the land, the oceans, the fresh waters and the sky are all impacted. Nothing is left untouched and yet nothing is completely destroyed. It's just a reminder to us that when we experience natural disasters in this world, it's, it's in a sense God removing His hand of protection for just a moment. It's, it's a reminder of God's protection being removed just for a moment and what can happen as a result. We always have to be careful about trying to identify specific sins or specific evils with specific natural disasters. But what we do know is that they are in response to the brokenness of this world many times. After these first four trumpets are blown, we read in verse 13 that there's an interlude. There's a break. There's a uh, there's a stopping for a second of these trumpets being blown. And we read in verse 13 that at that moment, an eagle flew over John's head. And as the eagle flew over John's head, it cried out, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the Greek's way of telling us that this is something to pay attention to. Anything that's mentioned three times in a row like that is mentioned for emphasis. These are a sense of great woe that the eagle is yelling out. And who is the woe to be given to? Well, he says it's for those who are dwelling on the earth. That's a code. Those who dwell on the earth. That's code that's used throughout Revelation and the Bible in general to speak about those who are not part of God's family. It's in distinction or in contrast with those who are the Lord's, those who are dwelling in heaven, even if they're physically on the earth, they're spiritually connected to God in heaven. And the point that the eagle is making is that there is more warning coming. There is more woe that is coming. And the woe of these last three trumpets is going to be far worse and even more harsh than the first four. And so we get the fifth trumpet in verse chapter nine, verses one through twelve. The first four trumpets depicted judgment falling down on the natural earth. These next two that we have in chapter 9, trumpet 5 and trumpet 6, depict judgment of supernatural proportions. Here we're getting the picture of demonic activity that is being unleashed to torment people on earth. We read that the fifth trumpet blows and John saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And did you notice that right after that he mentions that he mentions to it as he. He sees a star falling to the earth and then he says that it's a he. Well, who is he? Who is he seeing here as this star that is falling from heaven to earth? Well, we don't have to wonder too much. 
Jesus actually referenced this in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. He said that he saw Satan falling from heaven like a lightning or like a star. What John is seeing here is the fallen angel Satan himself. And, and what do we read about him? He's, he's given a key. The key to a bottomless pit. The word there literally means the abyss. And he opens that abyss. As he's given the key, he opens it. And we're told that out of the abyss comes smoke like a great furnace. And it darkened the sun. And it darkened the air. And then we read that out of the abyss and out of the smoke, locusts came out. And these locusts are unlike most locusts we've ever seen. They have power like scorpions. Their tails are like stingers that inflict torment on people. They're sent into the earth to torment those who do not have the seal of God on them. They they are sent out to torment those who are not God's people, those who are not in relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Now, I think it's safe for us to assume that this is not a picture of literal, actual locusts. We know that, first of all, by how they're described in verses 7 through 11. Uh, They're given lots of descriptions there. But we also know because uh, they didn't consume the vegetation like regular locusts do. Did you notice that? They're told not to eat the grass and the green things. They're told instead to torment specifically people. Uh, There's... All kinds of people that would try to turn this into uh, an infestation of actual bugs. And and some who have turned it into something that's even more weird than that. Uh, There are some that actually uh, come up with meanings for this that would have had absolutely no connection or no uh, meaning for the people that were reading this for the first time in the first century. Some of you know that there have been those that have, that have suggested that what's being described here are attack helicopters that are being unleashed, that they are spewing poison gas from the tails of the helicopters. And in just a minute, we're going to read about 200 million soldiers and people have suggested that that is a literal army and the only army that's big enough to, to be that is China. And so the, the, the suggestion is that these are attack helicopters spewing poison gas from their tails with a 200 million soldier army from the Red Army of China massing on Israel's borders ready to begin Armageddon. But that's not the best understanding of what's happening here. John's using language and imagery that come from the Old Testament book of Joel, chapters 1 and 2. And we know that he's not describing literal locusts, but he's describing something else that's even worse. We know that because he's telling us that these locusts come from where? They come from out of the abyss. Out of the bottomless pit. What he's describing here are demonic beings. Beings that are given power and authority to torment and to hurt unbelievers. And we know that they're not just locusts, that they are demonic beings because they have a king. And that king is none other than that angel of the abyss who is also known as Apollyon, which translated means destroyer. This is the one who comes and destroys and ruins. He is the very opposite of the Savior. 
This is what happens when the fifth trumpet sounds. The sixth trumpet we get in verses 13 through 19. As the sixth trumpet is blown, we're told that four angels who had been restrained at the river Euphrates are released. They had been waiting and now we're told when the sixth trumpet blows, they are released to kill a third of mankind on earth. We're told that they come with a massive army of angels, an uncountable number. Literally, it's 200 million, but most commentators know and understand that this is a reference to myriads of myriads, uncountable. It's a description of an army of angels that are bringing death. Again, there's lots of symbolism here. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a second. But the reference to the great river Euphrates, the the Euphrates River is an actual river and it's used throughout the Old Testament as a historical, as a geographical reference. But it's also used frequently in a symbolic way to describe the boundary between good and evil. The river Euphrates separated Israel from many of the people that came to try to conquer them from Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. It separated Israel from Babylon. It separated Israel from the Medo-Persian kingdom. And during John's day, that river was the eastern border of the Roman Empire. And just on the other side were the Parthians, great enemies of the Roman Empire. So this Euphrates River, although a literal river, also marked a boundary between good and evil, between safe and unsafe. We read in verses 20 and 21 the result of all of this taking place. The intention of all of this is to bring those who are not in a relationship with the Lord to repentance and to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would see and feel these judgments, that they would turn from their sin and turn from their wickedness and put their faith and their trust in the Lord God Almighty. But we read that even after all of these things take place, They did not repent of the works of their hands. That's a reference to following false gods, false idols, things that they had created with their own hands or with their own minds, things that they were worshiping more than they were worshiping the Lord God Almighty. They continued to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And many of the things that are mentioned there in those verses that they continue to do are directly referenced out of the Ten Commandments. So here we have these first six trumpets that are blown and we see what happens as a result of these trumpets blowing. Greg Beale, the great uh, scholar who has written an incredible commentary on Revelation, says that all of these things that are mentioned here with the first six trumpets have been executed throughout various parts of the earth at all times during the church age from the time of Jesus's first coming to the time of his second coming. But they don't necessarily affect the entire earth or all the people all the time. This is the picture that we're getting of these six trumpets. Let's talk for a moment here about the purpose of these trumpets. The purpose of the purpose of trumpets in general in both the Old Testament and the New Testament were varied. Sometimes trumpets were used to announce the arrival of a king. Sometimes trumpets were Uh, used to signal the second coming of the Savior of God's people. Sometimes trumpets were used to assemble God's people and to get them to recognize something that's important. 
And sometimes trumpets were used to announce the coming of judgment. I think those last two things are particularly what's in mind here with John's vision. I think the trumpets here are meant for two particular purposes. The first is for those who are not in a relationship with the Lord. Those who are not God's people. There's a serious warning here in these verses. There is a serious call to put faith in the Lord God Almighty and to repent and to turn to Him. The trials and the difficulties and even the natural disasters that we go through in this life are meant to make us think. They're meant to open our eyes to see that we are small. That, that, that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing Creator. And that we are His creation. And that we are created, that we are designed to serve Him and to worship Him. And to find our ultimate delight and purpose and significance in Him. There is a day coming when every single human being will be called to appear before God's throne of judgment. And at that very moment, there's only one thing that will matter. Whether we are in relationship with the Lord or not. You see, there must be payment. There must be justice for sin that we have done. And either we're going to pay for that sin or someone else is going to. Either we're in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and He pays for our sins or we at that moment are required to pay with our eternal lives. The trials, the difficulties, the torments of this life will pale in comparison to life apart from God's love and grace for all eternity. The description that we have of these judgments is meant to drive us to repentance and to have a relationship with the Lord. They're also meant to show us a demonstration of God, a demonstration of God's patient mercy. Did you notice even reading through all of these judgments as horrible as they are? There are many demonstrations in this passage. There are many descriptions of God's patience and God's mercy. Even in the midst of the judgments. Did you notice that only a third of the earth and the oceans and the fresh waters and the sky and human beings will be affected by these plagues? Did you notice that when the locusts, when these demonic beings are unleashed to torment, they are given a time limit. They're only able to do it for five months. Over and over again, we see evil forces and judgments being restrained and being limited. And what that shows us is God's patient mercy. God desires for his people to turn to him, to repent and to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God's patient mercy by reminding us of the fact that when we serve the works of our hands, when we serve false idols of this world, we will never be satisfied. We will never find true contentment and true peace in this world. It's not what we were created for. Anything that we turn to other than the Lord will ultimately fail us. Whether it's seeking the approval of others or a successful career, or financial stability, or sexual satisfaction, or the right spouse and the perfect family, or 
a good reputation, whatever it might be, that we would seek to have our ultimate peace and satisfaction and contentment come from, they are the works of our hands and they will fail us. I've shared this quote with you before. It's a powerful quote by none other than uh, the music uh, person Madonna. A while ago, she was uh, interviewed by Vogue magazine. And uh, I haven't seen the entire article that, uh, that was in the magazine, but one particular quote uh, is, is just stark. She says at one point, I have an iron will, and all of my life has been about trying to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I've pushed past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think that I am mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of it again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always been pushing me. Because even though I've been somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Kudos to Madonna for being honest. But it's also an example to us of how having success and having financial stability and having a name recognition and having a successful career and having all of these things, if we do not have the Lord God Almighty as the most important thing in our lives, the works of our hands will fail us ultimately. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, then I want you to see and to hear God's patient mercy towards you this morning. Don't face the justice and the judgment of God by yourself. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. Put your trust in the Lord. It is not too late. Today could be the day of your salvation. Experience God's grace and love through the Lord Jesus Christ. And find your greatest and most important and ultimate satisfaction and peace and joy that can only be found in Him. But if not, then know that a day is coming. And that day will be a day when it is too late. When you will face your Creator alone to pay for your own sins on your own through a life separated from His grace and His love forever. There is a stark warning here and we need to feel it. But I want you to also feel if you are a believer in Christ this morning that there is encouragement and there is hope for you today. This passage fills us with encouragement because God is sovereign. The picture throughout Revelation 8 and 9 is that God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is the one who answers the prayers of his people. God is the one who hands out the trumpets to the angels. God is the one who tells angels when to blow those trumpets. God is the one who puts restraints and limits on the impact and destruction of judgments. God is the one who puts Satan and his demon minions on a leash. God is the one who determines the time and the extent of the judgments upon the wickedness and evil. God is the one who is patient and merciful, calling all people to turn from evil and repent and to put their faith in him. 
The Bible is clear that God is not the author of evil. He is not the cause of evil, but he does overrule it and conquer it. Our God is not powerless against evil and injustice that we see and that we experience in this life. Just the opposite. And this passage is meant to be a source of incredible encouragement for God's people. I heard this past week a quote from a speech that was given at the United Nations in 1961 by Kennedy, President Kennedy. You'll remember during that time period that the nuclear crisis in the world was growing. People were incredibly afraid. And over the course of his speech, Kennedy said these words, Every man, woman, and child lives under a nuclear sword of Damocles, hanging by the slenderest of threads, capable of being cut off at any moment by accident, miscalculation, or by madness. Do you understand that that is not our God? If you are in Christ this morning, be encouraged. That is not our God. No matter what we go through and experience in this life, we can know that our God is in control. He will never allow us to be completely overcome and destroyed even by Satan himself. Anything that we go through in this life is meant to strengthen us and to grow our faith in the Lord and to help us to better understand him and to persevere. And anything that we go through in this life will pale in comparison to what is waiting for us in heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged. Our God is in control. But also be filled with hope. Because in this passage, we're reminded of God's promise. His covenant of grace. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you're one of these people, as is referred to here, as having the seal of God on you. And you're not sealed with just any seal. You're sealed with the very seal of God. That seal is your union with Christ. The promised Holy Spirit who lives in you at this very moment. That seal is God's promise of his covenant of grace. And because you have his seal on you, you are protected. As Elder Nyman prayed in his prayer, there is no fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no fear of these judgments and evil falling upon us. This is not your future and destiny. Although we may be touched by these things in this life, we will not be overcome by them. You've been sealed. There's another reminder from this text about God's covenant of grace. It's the mention of that great river Euphrates. Yes, it's an actual river with geographical and historical significance. But because of where that river Euphrates shows up in biblical history... I believe it's also a reference pointing us to a great theological truth. God's promise of his covenant of grace between himself and the Lord Jesus Christ that we are the beneficiaries of. There are two places in particular, there are a number of places where the river Euphrates shows up, but there are two places in particular. One is in the Garden of Eden. It's one of the rivers mentioned feeding the Garden of Eden. And the second place that I think is of particular note is the river Euphrates is specifically mentioned by God himself 
as he's giving the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. The promise that he would be his God and his people's God. And they would be his people's. And he would lead them into the promised land. And in reference to that, he mentions the great river Euphrates. As we hear this river mentioned here, yes, it has literal significance, uh, historical significance, geographical significance, but it's also meant as a reminder for God's people of the Garden of Eden before the fall. It's a reminder of God's promise of faithfulness and of grace to Abraham in Genesis 15. This is a reminder of God's covenant promises to his people. It's an ultimate reminder of the fulfillment of God's promise of his covenant of grace through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, God's unlimited, unrestrained judgment was poured out on Jesus. And because he took it all on himself, we as his people get none of it. Not only do we have the debt of sin erased from our record, but we are then credited with the righteousness of Christ himself. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that that truth seeks, seeps deeply into our hearts and our minds, the more that we believe this truth and we are filled with hope and encouragement as a result, the more that we will have strength to persevere and to endure into the end. To be people who live lives of loving and joyful obedience to our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear your word today. I pray that you would be at work through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to take your word and to apply it into our lives however you see fit. I pray that you would give your people hope and encouragement today as we remember your sovereignty, as we remember your covenant of grace. And I pray, Father, that for those that are here this morning who are not believers in you, who are not a part of your family, help them not to be able to put their head on their pillow today. Help them not to rest or be at peace until you have changed their hearts and that you bring them to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We read in the Gospel of Matthew that as Jesus and the disciples were gathering together to eat, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper is a reminder 
It's a demonstration, it's an illustration of both the sovereignty and the grace of God. We see God's sovereignty as we come and we eat the bread and we drink the cup because we remember that Jesus defeated sin. He defeated the power of sin. He defeated the penalty of sin. And, and we are reminded of God's sovereignty because he defeated not only sin, but he defeated death. Because we know that Jesus said, not only am I going to go to the grave and go to the cross, but I am going to celebrate this with you one day in the future because I am going to be resurrected. And as he was resurrected, he conquered death once and for all. We see the sovereignty of God in the defeat of sin, its power, its penalty, as well as death through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also see a demonstration, an illustration here of God's grace. That all who would put their trust and their faith in Christ are assured of eternal life. You're assured of that not because of your goodness, not because of your good works, not because of your faithfulness, not because of what family you come from, but you are assured that because it is He, it is Jesus Christ, who assures you that He will conquer all and he will establish you in his family forever and ever because these are the things that the Lord's Supper illustrates it makes sense that those who would eat and drink would be part of God's family Uh, our denomination's way of explaining that is to invite all who have made a public profession of faith been baptized and connected with a local body of God's people whether it's here at Trinity or another church that believes the word of God is true the gospel is by grace alone in Christ alone to come and to eat and to drink and to be reminded of these wonderful truths and to be strengthened as the Holy Spirit is at work as we come in faith strengthening our faith if that's you this morning then as the elements are coming around eat and drink and be reminded and be strengthened and if it's not you this morning Uh, then we would invite you to allow the elements to pass you by and instead to use this time to ask the Lord to reveal Himself as who He truly is to you and to show you His grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause before we partake and ask the Lord to bless this meal and to thank Him for giving it to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this means of grace, this this tool that you give us uh, to point us once again to the wonders of your grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for how this illustrates to us your sovereignty, your defeat of sin and death once and for all through the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, how it points us away from ourselves and points us to your grace, your mercy that we so desperately need. So we pray, Father, that as we meditate on these things, you would fill us up spiritually as we eat and drink. Help us to believe these things with even greater faith because of your work, even through something like the Lord's Supper, to strengthen us. Thank you for giving it to us. We ask that you would use it for this purpose, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.